This episode of Sports in the Making is brought to you by Heirloom Travel and Adventure. Now is the time to start booking your vacation travel. Whether you want to experience the Alaskan wilderness, relax on pristine beaches, or explore historic European cities, Heirloom Travel and Adventure can help you find your perfect destination. Specializing in luxury, faith-based, and group travel, Heirloom Travel and Adventure is with you through all planning stages from start to finish to ensure your vacation is everything you envision. Visit heirloomtravelandadventure.com to begin your adventure today. Heirloom Travel and Adventure is a cruise planner's franchise, your land and cruise experts. And a special shout out to Heat Media who helped on this episode. Heat Media is a creator of high quality visual content for high quality athletes and sports teams, capturing energy, emotion, and talent with cinematic visuals. Check them out on Instagram at heatmedia.co or heatmediavisuals.com. University of Colorado has one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. Not only does it have amazing views of the Rocky Mountains and the Flatirons, it also has some incredible architecture surrounding Folsom Field, which is currently celebrating its 100th anniversary. And this has been the epicenter for college football since Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, became the Colorado Buffaloes head coach here in Boulder, Colorado, making seismic waves not only in football, but the entire sports world. I couldn't think of a better way to mark the 40th episode of Sports in the Making than to take an hour drive north of where I'm located to visit with my friend, the voice of the Colorado Buffaloes, Mark Johnson. Thank you for joining me, Mark. I you appreciate are it. Very welcome. You're, 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 you're right. It's not just the epicenter of college football. I mean, the last couple of weeks, 60 Minutes, Time Magazine have been here. Yep. So it's beyond football at this point in time. Yeah, and for me to just to squeeze some time in with you, <laughs> I, I truly appreciate it. You're uh, very welcome. So we're here to talk about your career, uh, a little bit about what this season has been like, and then finding out what you do as Director of Broadcast with the University of Colorado. Let's do it. So first question, where does your love of sports come from? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I don't come from an athletic background in terms of my family. Um, I, was, I used to joke with my parents all the time. I said, okay, really, what family did I come from? Because number one, I'm as big as I am. I'm six foot five, weigh 240, 250 pounds. My family is, is a bunch of introverts. Nobody likes to talk. <laughs> and so I do this for a living. And so I'm not, I'm not sure what planet I got dropped off from, right, in the middle of, of my family, but that's always kind of a joke. But I, I just as a kid, uh, fell in love with, with all sports. I was a multi-sport athlete, turned out to be a pretty good basketball player, played college basketball. And when I realized the NBA was looking for guys who weren't terribly athletic, couldn't play defense, and uh, you know were decent shooters, uh, I thought, well, maybe I can broadcast. But but in all seriousness, now I I was coming out of high school. And I was thinking about being either a sportscaster or a pastor, and thought about coaching maybe a little bit as well. But and my old joke was that nobody needed the Lord more than the media did, so that's that's where I went. Uh, but I've always loved the games, loved the competition, loved the, you know, the X's and O's and the strategy behind it and, and fell in love with that. And then speaking always kind of came natural for me. And so I, I fell into this and, you know, it's been a great career so far. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're very smooth in your delivery on anything I've ever heard you on. Early in your career, uh, according to a documentary that I saw of you recently, yeah. you started off as a DJ. Yeah, I got into it uh, as a disc jockey. I was just looking for the opportunity. And, and by the way, I was a stutterer as a boy. And so I, I had to overcome that. And it was it was kind of a, just a force of will saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so how do I overcome that and, and you know, get into this broadcasting world? But yeah, I was looking for a job in broadcasting. What, what I don't care what that looked like. I was willing to you know be the 
drive-through guy at a fast food restaurant if that got me on a microphone. And so my, my hometown of Grand Forks, North Dakota, I was just knocking on doors, begging people for an opportunity. You know, not like today where there are podcasts and, and all kinds of streaming opportunities in the world of broadcasting. You had to get a job in a broadcast outlet. And so I got a job at Magic 96 Radio. It was Magic Mark back in the day. Magic Mark. And uh, flamethrowing, I always call it my long-haired, maggot-fisted disc jockey days. But it got me on the air, and because of my athletic background then, uh, I got an opportunity then to do sports not you know, that, that long after. And that got me doing the play-by-play, -play, and that's where I knew I wanted to go. And so eventually I left the disc jockey world, and I worked in a number of different formats, but left that behind and did sports full-time. From the DJ booth to being a play-by-play -play for sports, was the transition fairly smooth for you? Did you have a lot of growing opportunities to do in that yeah, world? Yeah, it's not a natural thing to call play-by-play. -play. In particular, I've done radio and television, but on radio, you're the eyes for everybody listening. Mm -hmm. And so the, the challenge is, how do I describe that? How do I relay what's happening? How do I... You know, help people understand if they're driving down a semi on I-70, does he understand the emotion of what's happening, the description of what's happening? And so it, it took some time. It, it's nothing more than being linear. When I'm listening on the radio, if you're working on yard work, you know, on a fall afternoon, or you're driving down the road, like I say, on I-70 in a semi, you can't see it. So how do I understand it? If I'm broadcasting a game and bouncing around all sorts of different things, that don't make sense from a linear thinking standpoint, it doesn't translate. And so there was a learning process. How do I describe this and help people understand? How do I use my voice to help people understand? You know, there's different ways you can accentuate your voice and how do I exert here but not exert here? How do I increase the pace of what I'm doing here and in other times not do that to help convey you know, the, the excitement or the tension that's happening. And so that came over, over a long period of time. But just like my athletic background, I understood the only way you get better is by doing reps. And a lot of times when I talk with young people that want to do this for a living, they, want to, they don't understand why I can't graduate and I'm going to go do play-by-play -play for the New York Yankees. For me, I understood I need reps. Well, where am I going to get reps? Uh, if I want to go to a major market, and try and get a job doing play-by-play. -play. It's going to take me a long time to get there. So I'm going to be a producer. I'm going to be a, an intern. I'm going to be a gopher at some place. I'm not getting reps then. So I went the small market route. I went to a small market and started at a station where they said you can do as many games as you want. As many games as you can fit in, you can do. Well, I'm not sure they understood the challenge they threw at me at that time. In a lot of these small markets, they'll have kind of a booster club kind of advertising thing. So every time you do a ball game, that client pays 25 bucks. So I, I sat down, I looked at the schedule, and I said, okay, it's high school football. They do a, a rare game on a Thursday night. They do an early game on Friday, a late game on Friday, maybe two games on Saturday. I can fit five, six games in on a weekend. And so that's what I did. And basketball, between boys and girls basketball, I did the same thing. And, you know, back in the day, the only night you didn't do high school basketball was on Wednesday night because that was church night. And so I'd fit as many. At one point, the sales manager came in and said, we've never had anybody do this many games before. You know, our advertisers are wondering why the bill's so high. Right. And I said, well, you said do as many as you can. And so I just went and did as many reps as I possibly could to try and improve what I was doing. And I was very hard on myself. I'd listen to the tape and go, boy, that stunk. I, I shouldn't have said it that way. Or how do I describe this better? And I'd bother guys around the country that I admire. And I'd send them tapes and say, you know, critique my tape for me. And I took all. So I, I approached it like an athlete to get better and, you know, eventually kind of led me to the upper levels of, of broadcasting. Well, it sounds like to me like you got your ten thousand hours in in a cram, uh -oh. in a yes. in a 
overnight study type of thing. That's right. Oh yeah, no, it was it was drinking out of a fire hose, and you know I, I knew that I had a natural sound for this. You know, good Lord bless me with a with a decent voice. But how do you then improve that? I've always said there are guys in broadcast and have great voices, and they rely on that, and you can. Right. And, and I joke all the time that, you know, that can erase a lot of mistakes uh, if you sound really good saying it. But I wanted to make sure that the foundation of what I was doing was good. And so I worked very hard on that part of my craft and thought, okay, if I can be as good as maybe the voice sounds, that's a pretty good combination. Now, I know that because of the epicenter of college football right now, people know you primarily probably for your voice of yeah. football, but you yeah. did basketball, you went to Syracuse University the year they won the uh, national, national championship, championship. in yep. 2003. 2003. Yeah. How did that come about in getting to a D1 university? My first Division One opportunity was at Illinois State in Bloomington Normal, Illinois. And I was doing high school games in Indiana and was, was desperately trying to find, I left the Division II job at my alma mater, University of North Dakota, where I was doing play-by-play -play for them, and I wanted to be in a Division I market. So I went to Indiana, I was in West Lafayette, Purdue University, and I wanted to be around that atmosphere to get a sense of what was it like, how does it work, how can I get involved in it? And so there was a great learning process I went through there for three years. Then the opportunity at Illinois State opens up, and there's my first Division I chance, and so I get that job with a little help from legendary basketball coach Gene Cady at Purdue. He helped me with that opportunity. And so I get that opportunity. And I was there for four years, and I was looking around and had a conversation with some NFL people at that time, and, but I, I hadn't found a great opportunity to move to that next level. And then the Syracuse job opened. And I don't know if you know what the Syracuse name in broadcasting means. It means a lot. Right. Yes. It's we, we jokingly in the business refer to the Syracuse Mafia, yeah. right? It's most of my colleagues. Uh, are yes, from you Syracuse. work in the business. Yeah, yeah. You, you certainly know. Um, you know, the Newhouse School of Communications is I mean, it is the spot to go to become a broadcaster. And if your viewers and listeners don't understand, I mean, Marv Elbert, Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, just going on down the line. I mean, it's, it's anybody and everybody uh, in, in broadcasting. And so that job opened up, and I had just turned down another Division I job because I didn't think it was the right setting for me. And this one opens up, and a buddy of mine says, you can apply. And I said, I'm not part of the family, man. I'm not a Syracuse right, guy. Right. So my wife, being the eternal optimist, says, well, you need to send him something. So back in the day, it was a resume and a CD, and so I shot it off thinking nothing's going to happen. And I very quickly get a call back, and they say, we'd like to talk to you. So uh, I think it was me and probably four or five other Syracuse grads that were up for the job, and, and I ended up getting that job. And, you know, I walk on campus the same time Carmelo Anthony does, and he's the number one recruit in America. And, you know, Jim Beheim at Syracuse was a, you know, a top-level program, a blue blood in, in college athletics. And six months later, I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana, Superdome, calling the national championship against Kansas. Syracuse wins, and that kind of put my name and voice all over the place. And, you know, it was uh, one more year. I went back to Syracuse. Always had my eye on Denver. Growing up in North Dakota, you don't have a major market there. So you look at Minneapolis and Denver, kind of the two you look at. I always kind of looked at Denver and thought it might be cool if I could go there. Well, in 2003, after the national championship, I came out and pinched in on some Denver Broncos games. And then that opened the door here. And the next year, as the good Lord would have it, Syracuse came through Denver in the NCAA tournament. And KOA Radio at that time, they, they called me up and said, hey, how would you like to be our sports director and be the voice of the buffs? And I said, all right, show me where to sign. So yeah. 20 years later, here I am. What's the difference when you call a basketball game versus a football game? And as far as your preparation goes, there's obviously fewer people. It's a different format. Still back and forth on a general court. Yeah. But, but what... 
what's the difference in preparation between the two? Well, football is such an enormous event. It's so big, and you prepare all week in the buildup to, you know, college on a Saturday. When I've done NFL, it's, you know, a Sunday afternoon. And so the amount of memorization and preparation is just it's larger. You know, it's simple as that. Basketball is a smaller game. Now, when it comes to the actual game broadcast, you know, I would say the, the, the concepts of play-by-play are the same. I have to be able to convey what's happening. But football is, is nothing more than a formula, all right? Okay. Football, it's first down at, you know, 10 from the 25-yard line. Colorado moving left to right, ball in the right hash mark. So I've given you the, the basics of the understanding of where they are on the field, what, what's happening. Uh, set the formation, call the play, describe that, call the catch and the tackle, <clears throat> let, your, uh, let your color analyst explain what just happened, and then just repeat that for three and a half hours. So it's pretty simple in that regard. You know, you're, you're making sure you're, you're peppering the broadcast with the score and time, obviously. With, with basketball and hockey, and I've done a bit of hockey over the years, early on in my career, that's an ebb and a flow, and it's about surface geography. Right, it's on the court, it's on the elbows, in the short corner, on the right wing, left wing, you know, across the, the midcourt stripe, whatever it might be. <clears throat> and then you're giving the, the score, obviously, more frequently, because it changes frequently. So that's as simple as that. Baseball, I did quite a bit of Major League Baseball over the years, and that's a, it used to be a three and a half hour game with eight minutes of action, right? So then you're just conveying the sense of what's happening on the court, or on the field, I should say, and, you know, what's transpiring, how they're setting everything up, what the strategy is. Oh, by the way, there's, you know, eight seconds of action where a guy, you know, grounds to the left side, he gets to first base, throws not in time, it's a single. And, and so it's much more of painting the overall kind of generics of the, or generalization, I should say, of, of the circumstance, and then giving you the little bit of play-by-play that happens in the middle of it. So the, the concepts of play-by-play are the same, the circumstances are different in terms of kind of how you approach it. In baseball is where you really earn your money because yep. you have oh, to yeah. tell stories in all those dead times, yep. and that's what made Vince Scully. And, oh, and, the best. You know, yeah. yeah. So, the best that ever worked is Vince Scully, yeah. Right. Yeah. So working locally with a, with a home team, I know in the phrase, there's a phrase, you know, a homer as far as a broadcaster goes, right. but you also have to do national. What's the balance in how you cover a team when it's a local team? Because you're obviously talking to your fan base, but you still have to have that uh, ability and, and to, to critique or, or to, to call it as you see it. The one thing that you have that is of phenomenal value is your credibility. You have to have that. And so my litmus test, doing national games is much different than the local team. So being the voice of a team, I always, this is my litmus test. I want that guy that I mentioned that's in a semi driving down I-70 or I-25 and he's running across country and he stumbles upon us on Sirius XM radio and he listens and says, well, obviously this guy is the Colorado announcer, but I feel like I'm getting a fair assessment of the game. Um, Not every call that goes against Colorado is a bad call. Not every call that goes against the opposition is a good call, and I frequently will say that. I've had CU fans over the years, you know, I totally disagree. That was a terrible call in Colorado. No, it wasn't. And I'm going to be honest about that. Um, I've had people say, you know, when the other team made a play, it, you got a little bit excited on that. Why? Well, it's a great play. I'm broadcasting a game. I want to convey to you what's happening. And so I want that objectivity enough. Listen, I love the Buffs, and I've been here for 20 years, and I'm not going to hide that, okay? Being here this long, I'm a Buff. I'm part of the fabric of this institution and this uh, community and this fan base, but I'm not going to lie to you. 
I want you to understand exactly what happened and why it was good and why it was bad and, and if it was a, a correct call or if it was an incorrect call. That's the fine line. Now, my touchdown call for Colorado is going to be much different than it is for Stanford here on Saturday, or rather uh, USC here on Saturday. It's going to be a very different call for obvious reasons. But when I'm done, I want somebody to say, that was a fair broadcast. He told me what I wanted to hear and sometimes not what I want, didn't want to hear, but it was the truth of what was happening in the game. When I, I, I got my job here with uh, NBC Sports, Universal Sports Network back in 2012, I'm a Broncos fan. I grew up in Western Colorado. Sure. I would hear yeah. Dave Logan on the radio and, and uh, Ed McCaffrey, I yep. think, at the time. At the, time yeah. Yeah. the first time I remember hearing your voice was doing post-game interviews. Sure. And I thought, what a distinctive, cool voice. Like, I wish <laughs> I had that. Right, right. But you were also the sports director at that time, yes, correct? So what, what, were you, what were your job responsibilities there? Well, as a sports director, I, was do, I did that job for 13 years along with Do the Buffs, and that was just overseeing the sports department. So, you know, at, at KOA at the time, you've got the Broncos, Buffs, and Rockies who are the three contracts that we had. So there was setting up those networks, helping with that, negotiating contracts with some of the athletes we had relationships with. Um, helping organize the broadcast, even though I wasn't doing broadcast for all you know the, the entities or the properties we had, there was there was some you know, duties that came along with that, making sure they were executed properly, and and then at KOA I hosted a lot of stuff and different shows and anchored different uh, sportscasts and newscasts, and so it was a pretty all-encompassing job that kept me going, you know, 12 months out of the year that I had to be covering things. And that's why I loved when I came here almost seven years ago now. Now I, I just do the buffs. And so, you know, the non-sports season, once you get to the summer, that slows down considerably. And uh, my, my focus is on Colorado. I don't do anything from a national perspective. I did that for a number of years. Kind of got tired of traveling all the time. My wife was you know, disappointed I was gone, even on bye weeks. Uh, and so that, that changed. But, yeah, at KOA, it was, it was a 12-month-out-of-the-year kind of job. All right, before we transition into the next line of questioning yeah. here, Folsom Field, 100th year, you've been here going on 20. How about that? One-fifth of the games I'll One have called here when it's game. all said and done. What is most special about this place to you? Well, if you listen to one of our broadcasts, when we come out of the game open, the first thing I always say is, we come to you from Folsom Field, the most majestic setting in college football, right? And it is. I mean, you turn around and look over your shoulder there at what sits behind this place. You know, and I've done games in most of the major facilities in the country now over all the years I've been doing this. There's no place that has this kind of setting and no place that can, right? I mean, you know, you're not going to build the flat irons, for goodness right. sake. You're not going to build the front range at the Rocky Mountains. And the uniqueness of the red stone that surrounds us, it's just got a feel to it. It's intimate. It's not a 100,000-seat stadium. It's a 50,000-seat stadium. And so there's an intimate feel to it. The sight lines are great. You kind of sit and, hang and overlook the field. My broadcast location is one of the best locations you can have in sports. It's not too high. It's not too deep. Where is it? It's right across. You can see the KOA sign right across over there. That's our booth. So we're about 40-yard line to the left when you're sitting and looking down. So you're near midfield. I mean, it's just it's got the, the greatest feel. And then the natural beauty that surrounds it. You know, I, I've seen some great ones. BYU's got a nice one, you know, and you go down to, uh, you know, North Carolina's got a nice setting down there. So there are plenty of places that have a great setting, but nobody's got all of the characteristics that surround this, and it makes it very unique. And, you know, then when Ralphie runs out, you know, it blows everything else away. Okay, so we've been talking about the epicenter here yeah. for college football. Coach Prime here, have you ever seen anything like this? No. Well, there never has been anything like it. <laughs> Fair you know, enough. I was on, I was on. I think it was ESPN, not long after he got here. And 
I said something about him being one of one. I said he has done, it's a tsunami that has hit this city and this program and this market. It is unlike anything that anybody else, and this guy says to me, wait a minute, you don't think anybody else could have this kind of impact? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe if Oprah Winfrey decided she wanted to coach or something. But I mean, think about what you've got here. You've got a guy, number one, one of the greatest athletes in the history of mankind, right? You can throw out your five, you throw Bo Jackson in there, Michael Jordan, and you know, I mean, whoever else, Jim Thorpe, and throw, you know, your five, six, seven people you want to make that argument with. He's in the conversation, okay? Uh, so he's one of the, the most marquee, uh, iconic athletes of all time. Football, Major League Baseball, Super Bowl winner, World Series winner, that in and of himself makes him unique. Then he becomes a, a media fixture for a number of years, and so he's been able to do that. Uh, he's a cultural icon uh, in terms of you know, the, the world of, of celebrity. Um, he's about as dynamic as anybody you're going to meet. So I don't know who you find that encompasses all of that. And then you make them into a successful football coach, somebody who obviously what he did at Jackson State has, was fantastic, in particular the last couple of years. <clears throat> and you've got somebody that, that brings qualities to this that nobody has ever had. You could bring another coach here. There, there are marquee coaches you could bring in that aren't going to bring the cultural significance, the, the athletic significance. They were just great coaches. Now, they might, might be great personalities, but they don't bring all of it. And that's why I say, not it's unlike anything I've ever seen, and I'm not sure anybody else could do what we've seen here. The most irrelevant football program a year ago to the most talked about and relevant football program in one year's time, in nine months' time, uh, the television numbers after four games, they've, they've drawn 35, 36 million sets of eyeballs, and the number two team in the country in that regards at like 12 million? I mean, it's stunning what has happened. And it's affected every aspect of this athletic department. As I mentioned before, you've done a couple documentaries have been done about you since. How has that changed your job responsibilities? Well, there's been a couple things that have been funny about it. I was on a network one day and the guy says something about, you know, your, your broadcast and it's fantastic and unbelievable. And, and, on and on. I said, you know, I've been doing that for 35 years. The broadcast wasn't any different last year. Right. It's just nobody was paying attention, right? So it's the same broadcast we've always done, but along with that then comes attention. And just by association of the, this, this, you know, this, this unbelievable energy that Prime's brought here, by association, it kind of spills over on you. So on our broadcast, what's happened, we've got more ears on our broadcast now, and more people are paying attention. And the stuff we put out on social media is getting more attention. And, you know, any, anytime we do a show with him, it gets 100,000 views. And so what has happened is it's just increased the exposure of what we're doing. And, and that, that's good for the program. And, you know, uh, I do a few more interviews now than I, than I did before. You know, but uh, as a play-by-play voice, you become the, the proxy as a result of not everybody can get to the coach. And so that's made me a little bit busier in that regard. Sure. But uh, it, it's been good. It's been certainly enjoyable. And listen, anytime you're calling wins like we are right now, being a three-on-one, that's a whole lot more fun than calling losses. You know, and, I, and I've called a lot of losses in 19 seasons. Does it have any effect on the relationship that you have with the head coach? Because I know... You know, through the years, you do have to yeah. develop certain type of relationships. Yeah. But when we're talking about prime celebrity status, I'm sure he's got tons of obligations himself. Yes. Yeah. Does it affect or enhance or maybe a little bit diminish the relationship that you can build with the coach? Well, I suppose it probably does in some form or fashion. Yeah, he's a guy that's got a thousand balls in the air at one time, right? I mean, he's got all that. He's got the football coaching aspect of this, which is enormous. And he's got his endorsements and public appearances and all the stuff that he does. And so the relationship's a little bit different. When you've got a guy that is just solely focused on coaching a football team, 
you know, I can walk down a hallway over the years and stick my head in and say, hey, coach, I need this or that, or we got to do this. And, and that happens pretty easily. With Coach Prime, there is so much going on. You know, you talk to an agent or a handler or an assistant or a marketing person or a documentary person or, you know, whatever else he's got going on in order to line those, those interviews up. And so, yeah, I wouldn't say that, you know, because of the magnitude of kind of what he is doing, you know, I don't spend a lot of one-on-one time with Coach like I might with other coaches. But I'll tell you this, when he walks in and sits down and we've got, you know, the camera set up or we've got a radio show, whatever it might be, uh, number one, he knows how to handle himself in front of a microphone or in front of a camera. So he's outstanding. He's got a charismatic personality. So when he walks in and sits down, it's go time. You better be ready to, to kind of hit it and, and play at a high level. So changing the subject now, we have a unique way on how we met. Yes. 2019, February, there was yep. a Castle Rock bull riding. Yep. I was shooting a documentary. Yep. I was shooting the last event of my documentary. And, I, and like a dummy, I was in the arena with my camera. <laughs> you happened to do the prayer. Yep. And we'll talk about yep. that in just a, a bit. Yep. But as I was shooting, the first bull comes out, the rider falls off, the bull's on the other side of the arena, and yet the bull came back. I want to hear what your perspective was. You, pro- you had to have seen the dumb camera guy in there. <laughs> yeah, I but did. I bull, remember this. Yeah. So, so what were you doing there, number one, and then what, what did you see transpire? Well, I got, I got invited there by a friend that day, and it just so happened because I do a lot of ministry work by happenstance. Somebody said, hey, we need... Uh, somebody to do the, the opening prayer, would you please do this? So that's why I was there, uh, along with being a, a fan. And I'm, I'm involved in a rodeo world and do a lot of team roping myself. Uh, now, your incident, number one, Don, your head was not on a swivel like it's supposed to be, okay? <laughs> when you're in the arena with, uh, you know, an 1,800-pound bull out there that somebody's riding, you can't be turning your back and not paying attention. Right. I know you got a job while you're, you know, on the camera looking for the good footage, but when that bull took off, that doesn't mean it's safe time out there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember when you showed me the, the, the highlights there, I remembered that moment. Yeah, you let your guard down. Uh, bull looked like he was heading out of the arena, and then all of a sudden he decided maybe he wanted to come down and visit you, and, and that threw you into a little bit of a, little bit of a tailspin. Oh, yeah. No, he flung yeah. me straight up, and yes, I just did. remember two hands on me, and those were your hands. <laughs> That's right. Preventing me from falling back in. Um, and then the rest of the day, it was just sore yeah. um, on both sides, and the hip where he got me, and then the, the leg where he rammed me in. Right. Probably sore the next day and the next day right. after that. Right, but yeah. that was my first yeah. interaction with you. It was, so, it was. I just happened to be on the other side of the uh, the railing there. Right, so when I was trying to find out who actually <laughs> saved me, they, they were like, oh, it's Mark Johnson. I'm like, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> right. And then I look back at the footage, and I'm like, wait a second, he does look like the guy <laughs> from the Buffaloes, and sure enough, right. it was the voice of the It buff. was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was uh, a little bit of, uh, shall we say, naivete on your part that you, yes. you turned you turned your attention away from the yes. bull, which you never do until he's out and the gate is shut. Right. Well, yeah. as camera guys, we always try and push the limits. I so. know. I know. <laughs> um, so, so going back then, you did the prayer. Yeah. Um, I know the, uh, being a Christian is a very strong part of who you are. Yep. Not question. How are you able to express that in an environment uh, such as this? Well. When it comes to broadcast, I can't and I won't, all right? Uh, My focus when I do a broadcast is on the broadcast. The game is the story. That's not my position to minister then. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, here's an interesting little aspect uh, of life. I get a letter one day. A guy sends me actually an old snail mail letter. And I opened up and it was a local pastor. I hadn't been in town very long. And he wrote me a letter and all it said was, Mr. Johnson, welcome to Colorado. I've enjoyed listening to you. 
I don't know this for a fact, but I think you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. Because I can hear it in the way that you phrase things. And so my job as a believer, uh, yes, I do go out and minister. I preach and I talk to men's conferences and at events and do prayers at rodeos and all that kind of stuff. And that's a big part of it. But then it's the idea in a part of Scripture is let your light shine before man. Let me see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So my job is to be a light in that regard. So I make a lot of mistakes, but I try to handle myself in a way that's professional and kind and caring and loving. And I hope that comes through then in a certain way that impacts people. And eventually somebody will ask me a question about where that comes from. That's kind of how I view that. And yeah. so even though I can't and won't on the air, because I work in a secular job for a secular institution, and my job's to broadcast a game, but then how do I convey you know, my love of Christ, if you will, and how do I conduct myself that would indicate that, that uh, might ask somebody to, you know, what that's all about. And, and so that's kind of the way I approach things from a professional standpoint. And then the other part of that, close number two, would be your family. Yes. Yep. We're Facebook friends. I yep. see a lot of your posts. I really appreciate them because you, you highlight your family in a way where it's true love. Mm. And I know that you have some, some, uh, some challenges that you've sure. had to overcome in, yep. in your family life. Can you explain a little bit yeah, about that? I've got, so my wife and I have been married almost 32 years. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, three children, a boy, girl, boy. Uh, my older two are you know, healthy, normal children, if you will, and are doing their thing now here in the metro area. My daughter's married with two grandbabies, by the way. So if you do follow me, by the way, on social media, I will bore you to death with my granddaughters. All right, that's one thing I'll do. Um, but my youngest son is Jacob, 26 years old, and Jacob has got multiple disabilities. He's our forever child. And so that's a challenge that we have in our family every day that, you know, if I go out and speak someplace, they say, well, your wife be coming. I'll say, well, it's a threesome. My son will come because he's with us all the time. He's our forever child. And so Jake has been an unbelievably impactful part of our life. I always say, Don, he's our greatest blessing and our greatest challenge at the same time. And I would change that for nothing. Um, he, uh, he makes me put things in priority. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the world. And then I come home and Jake just loves the fact that dad's home and he wants to interact. And although his communication is very rote, we've got these little patterns, little things we do. And I'm the worst singer in the world. I sing to my son and my granddaughters and that's about it. But Jake wants me to, we got songs we sing and we go through these different routines. And that's a great reminder to me what is important. The other thing about Jacob is this, my wife and I talk about this on a regular basis. We don't know how long we're going to have Jake with us. And so um, I'll tell you a great story. I won't say who it was. There was a coach years ago I worked with who had an easy time getting caught up in the stresses of life in his job. And, and I was trying to counsel him through that. And, and one day he was just adamant about, yeah, but me. And so I said, coach, I want you to think about something. And I said, I'm not trying to outdo you, but I want you to broaden your perspective. I said, every day my wife and I get up and we wonder, is today the day we walk up and open the bedroom door of my son and he is passed on? And I said, I want you to just have perspective on things. And so that aspect of our life uh, also grounds us every day. And, and in that, I think, is that idea that we don't know when, when the Lord's going to call Jake home. And so for me, it's enjoy Jacob today. Uh, can we sing a song today? Can I, he loves to 
where I live in that little ranch I've got up on the mountains, he loves to get the four-wheeler and ride around the mountain. He wants to go, we got a little stream on our property, he wants to go sit back there. He wants to go on an adventure, as he calls it. And so that's something that I think my wife and I have learned through Jake's existence, that maybe if he wasn't here, I wouldn't have learned. Because I would have been just like, you know, everybody else. We get caught up in life and focused on career and, you know, moving up the ladder and all those different things. But with Jake, it's reminded me every day, okay, how can I enjoy today? And, and how can I show love and appreciation for somebody around me? And, and so that's what Jake has taught us over the course of time. And is it a challenge? Oh yeah, it's a challenge. And it can be a severe challenge at times with his health issues. But uh, it, the blessing far outweighs any challenge we've got in life. Just hearing you say that, yeah. and, and now putting in perspective what I hear on the radio when you're calling games, yeah. there's a joy a certain sense of joy that I that I can sense from your voice, and maybe that's what that person who reached out to you yeah. was was expressing, because you value life, you value what's happening, sure. and you don't take it for granted. No, no, certainly not. You know, first off, I live, I, I work in the in the fun and games department. When I was at KOA, we used to joke about that. You know, in our newsroom, we were down on one end. And the news director would go, hey, you guys are screwing around down there. Yeah, no, nobody's dying down here, right? We're, we're dropping a pass or getting a penalty or missing a free throw, but, you know, this is the fun and games department. So I've always appreciated that about what I do. Um, you know, if you're doing it, when I worked in news, you know, I, I was reading some pretty awful stories on occasion. In a world of sports, yeah, you lose, but, you know, tomorrow there's another game. Uh, so along with that aspect of what Jake has brought to me and, and what my faith brings to me as well, that, that hope. Uh, you know, the, the Bible talks about being able to explain that, that hope that we have. And so I think all of that combined, you know, kind of changes my perspective. I get frustrated, I get upset, I get angry just like anybody else does. But there's a pretty quick turnaround in that because very quickly I'm going to be reminded in some form or fashion uh, about maybe something more important than the fact that, you know, the car broke down or the furnace broke down or, you know, whatever it might be. Or my kids were teenagers and they run into something with one of the cars. Very quickly, I, I, I brought back to the centering that things are a bit larger than that, and that's not going to end everything for me. All right, as we wind down here a little bit, how would you describe the Colorado fan base? Hmm, interesting. Um, right now, I would say <laughs> they have been, for the bulk of my tenure here, unbelievably hungry yes. for what used to be. you got to remember, when... Bill McCartney rolled in there, and they had success. There were, there were coaches that had great success. The great Eddie Crowder had wonderful success along his career. But there had been a long drought, and then Bill McCartney got here. And Bill McCartney had the audacity with a terrible football team to point to that team out east that wears red and says, we're coming after you. And Nebraska at that time was one of the top dogs in the country. Tom Osborne. There you go, yes. And everybody out there east laughed and said, what are you kidding me? You guys have been a doormat in, in the Big Eight. Uh, coming for us? What are you, nuts? Well, within a very short period of time, Bill McCartney actually caught them and competed with them and won a national championship and, you know, put this program on the map and had a phenomenal run up until 1994 when he abruptly retired then and went to work with Promise Keepers, of course. And then they continued a pretty impressive run through Rick Neuheisel and Gary Barnett uh, 2001, nearly plays for a national championship. I get here in 04, and I'm thinking, well, that's just what happens in Colorado, right? I mean, I, from growing up, from my time in high school all the way through the time when I was, what, 36 or 37 when I got here, Colorado was a monster football program. And I thought, well, that's just what they're going to do. Well, then the bottom fell out. So 04 and 05, my first two years, Gary and the Buffs win the Big 12 North and go to the Big 12 championship and win a bowl game, and then Gary gets let go. 
and the bottom falls out. And since then, I've called one winning season. And so this fan base was enormously starving for some success in this great program that has a national championship and national award winners and on and on and on. And it's been not just bad, Don. It's been as bad as anybody in the country. 1-11 last year. Yes, and it was a bad 1-11. I mean, not even compa- <laughs> if that makes sense. When I say that, people laugh, but it really was. We should have been 0-12. And games were over in the middle of the first quarter. I'd look at Gary and I'd say, what are we talking about? This game's over. And so to have that long a drought and now to have what Coach Prime has established here in this short period of time here and have this hope, use that word once again, this hope of better days and better opportunities and more wins and national championship competition, it has been like giving a a man that's been in wandering through the desert a cup of water. And so this fan base right now is... You know, I, I say it's 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 a it's a frenzy on steroids because they're just going nuts about the possibility here, and and that's why it's fun to be here to be able to chronicle it, you know, for the fans, because they've been wanting it so badly, and now I get to tell them that story each and every Saturday, and you know, three out of the four we played so far, they've been wins, including one win over Nebraska and Colorado State, and the national perspective and the attention that's come along with it. Uh, right now, this fan base is, uh, like I said, they're. They're, they're quenching the thirst, and they want more. And I showed you a picture uh, of Cash. Yes. Cash Muller, he's my neighbor. He painted his backyard in buffs colors yeah. and mowed the lawn. He painted it. What do you think <laughs> of something like that when you see it? Well, first off, you know, it, it's fans like that, it, the reason I have a job. Right, because fans fall in love with an institution, and especially in college. You know, I've done plenty of NFL stuff, but college is unique in the idea that there's a connection to it, right? Uh, your mom and dad probably went there. Your brother and sister went there. Or you end up going there, and it's a family tradition. And so, fans like Cash uh, are what's great about college athletics, and the fact that Cash did what he did and built that field and put that together, uh, that's just that's just part of what makes college athletics special. I love it. Cash, way to go, right? <laughs> nice job out there, young man. Great work on that field. And uh, you keep cheering on the Buffaloes. <laughs> All right, two more questions for you. What's your favorite sports movie? Wow, okay. This That's, one gets everybody yeah. every time because there's so many to choose from. Yeah, there are so many. You know, you immediately start thinking about Field of Dreams and for the obvious reasons. I lost my father as a young man to suicide, so that, that's always kind of been one that hit home for me. Um, you know, when I, when I think probably, probably Rudy, when I really think about it. And, and I love that movie because it's about possibilities. Right. Right? And one of the things that makes sports great is the fact that sometimes the unexpected happens. You can't script it. You can't predict it most of the times. But that's why we love the underdog. That's why we love, you know, the miracle on ice. Because America was not supposed to beat the big red machine at that point in time that that the Soviet Union was. Uh, That's why we love when... Somebody makes a run to the Final Four in college basketball. Um, that's why we love the movie Hoosiers, for example. I was in Indiana doing high school basketball for a number of years. <clears throat> when that small school is able to knock off the big boy, you know, we love those stories. Uh, now we always enjoy when, when you know, when Goliath meets Goliath. We like the traditional powers, right? right. When Duke and North Carolina play in basketball, we like that. Uh, we, we, we like when you know the, the Yankees play the Boston Red Sox. I mean, that, but. When that underdog happens, like happened to Rudy, that brings out something unique in all of us. And I think that's one of the things that makes sports so special is that you can't predict it, 
but it happens on occasion when it's not supposed to. And that, that's one thing we love. So I think, I think probably Rudy would, might be my number one. Okay, that's, that's a good answer. I saw it on the airplane a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah. So what is the most memorable item or credential that you have and why is it special special to you? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I do sports, but I've told, I always tell people my fandom died a long time ago because I, I see how the sausage is made, right, if that makes sense. And, and it is my job. And so I'm not a great sports fan. I watch sports a little bit, but you got to remember, that's what I do for a living. I never go to an event. If I'm not broadcasting it, I just don't go because I do so many events. <clears throat> and so I haven't kept a lot of stuff over the years. I call the national championship, so I got a couple of things from that. That's, that's awful cool. My best piece of memorabilia, though, and I really only have this one, uh, early in my career, I was in West Lafayette, Indiana, as I mentioned, at Purdue University. And I started announcing for an independent minor league baseball team called the Lafayette Leopards. They had a kid there named Casey Fisk who was on the team. His father was Carlton Fisk, the Hall of Fame in you know, a Boston Red Sox. And you think of the great home run, right, him waving it, that kind of thing. Well, I got to know Carlton a little bit uh, during that time period and found him to be a wonderful, wonderful human being. And Carlton would come because we were just south of Chicago, and so he would come and watch his son play for the Leopards on a regular basis. Now, Carlton was, was a stickler about this. If you ever came up to him and asked him for an autograph during the action, he would always tell you no. I'm watching my son right now. And I always respected that. And so he'd turn to watch, half inning would come over and say, okay, well, give me your ball, and he'd sign it. And he was also a stickler about being uh, polite when you ask for an autograph. If somebody ever walked up and said, give me your autograph, he'd say, give me your autograph. No, you ask me if I would give you an autograph. And then he was a child, he'd actually, I saw him do this a couple of times, he'd actually say, where's your father? And a kid would point to his father and he'd say, you didn't teach your son to come up and ask politely for an autograph? And I always appreciated that about him. And, and when my son, my oldest, uh, Nicholas, was growing up, uh, it was always, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please and thank you. And that's the way I, I taught him to, to approach life. And so one day we're out there, and, and Carlton, and, and I call him Nico, and Nico had grown this, he was only about five years old at the time. And they had developed a little bit of a relationship. Uh, every once in a while I'd look down and Nick would be sitting on Carlton's lap watching Casey and you know, Nick would be sitting there eating his popcorn or something and just watching. And, and so one day we were doing a doubleheader. And I called my wife and they, my family was coming out for the second game. And I called and I said, hey, Carlton is here. Why don't you stop and get Nicholas a, a baseball? And, and he can have Carlton sign it today. And so it was in between games, and I'm sitting up there, you know, a small stadium, and I'm just above the, the fans down here. And I looked at my wife and said, there's Carl. So Nico takes the ball, and he walks up, and he says, Mr. Fisk, can I please have your autograph? And my wife had coached him on what to say, because he was five. And so uh, Carlton laughs. He says, Nico, anything for you? And he takes the ball, and he signs it and gives it back to Nicholas. And Nicholas says, thank you, or as he was told to do. And he turns around and takes about four steps and he looks at the ball, not understanding the concept of autographs. You know what he was asking for. He stops and he looks and he goes, Mom, Carlton wrote on my baseball. <laughs> and it was funny. Carlton starts just barreled over laughing. I mean, I thought it was the funniest thing ever. I'm dying. And Carlton says to him, I'll tell you what, Nick, next game I'll bring a ball and you can write on my ball, right? And so that's the ball I've kept because it shows, number one, great player, Hall of Fame player. Uh, but that these guys, they, you know, they're human beings. Um, they, they may be in a position where, you know, they've had adulation for years, but it just goes to show the human side of that. And so I've always, I've, that's the one thing I've got in a little shelf in, in my office at home. I just keep that because I always think it's a great reminder of that whole story. And it's a great personal connection to that piece of memorabilia. And that's what it is. It's the story behind yeah. the actual artifact, yeah. right? Yeah. Because 
anybody can get a signed ball. Yes. But when you have a story like that, that that is more of the the enthusiasm, the passion. Yeah. That's what really makes. Well, it you know what we've done in sports is we we've monetized everything. Right. And to me. You know, I'll give you a prime example. Uh, back in Syracuse when Carmelo was there, and we knew Carmelo was going to be a phenomenal NBA player, and, and he came out the same year that uh, LeBron did. He was the number three pick, goes to the Denver Nuggets. And he's an 18-year-old boy at that time. He was just a kid, it, and so it was kind of fun being around him and advising him a little bit. I coached him a little bit on interviews and how to handle himself. But one day, as that season wore on, when Syracuse would get to town, it was like the Beatles were coming to town, right? We'd get to a hotel, there'd be people waiting for autographs, and, and all those folks out there that wanted to make money off the autograph. And I said to Carmelo one day, I said, you know, because he, he made some comment about, you know, I signed those things, and I know they're going to be on, on online here, you know, the next couple of days. I said, just do this. Anytime they ask you to sign something, say, who's it for? And if they say it's for Stacy or it's for Steve, sign the autograph to Steve from Carmelo. I said, that way they can't sell them online because it's autographed to somebody. And I said, in those moments when it is a legitimate request <clears throat> for somebody personally, it makes it that much more special because you've written it, okay, to Don Carmelo Anthony. And that way there's a connection there. And I said, that, that way you kind of disarm this whole commercialization of, of what's happening here. And uh, it's valuable not because it's you, but because you've wrote it to somebody. And I think we've lost some of that in sports a little bit. There's a positive side to that, and then there's a negative side, and it, it saddens me sometimes, the negative side. The unique hat, <laughs> the unique voice. Yes, sir. The unique stadium with what all the history. Place. Enjoy your 100th season here at Folsom, and I hope that you have a wild ride this year. It's not. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. And here's the good news. It doesn't all have to end this one season, right. because when he builds this thing, I truly believe that with Coach Prime at the helm of this thing, that very, very soon, Buffs fans are gonna taste of another championship. Mark Johnson, voice of the Buffs, thank you so much for joining me. Good to see you, Tom. Since this recording, the Buffs fell to the USC Trojans, but Mark had a fantastic broadcast as the Buffs nearly made a comeback in Boulder. In addition to having incredible experience as a play-by-play announcer, Mark is as genuine as they come and a kind-hearted person, and I thank him for finding time for me in what is probably the busiest time he's had since he's been at CU. If you haven't had the chance to hear Mark, as an announcer, he makes each score exciting for the Colorado Buffaloes, and you'll likely hear more of his voice nationally in the Coach Prime era. A special thank you to Heirloom Travel and Adventure, a cruise planner's franchise, for sponsoring this episode. Visit heirloomtravelandadventure.com and start your travel planning today. And thanks as well to Heat Media for providing the visuals. Check out their work on Instagram, heatmedia.co, or their website, heatmediavisuals.com. Again, if you're listening, you can see our interview done at Folsom Field on the CU campus in Boulder, Colorado on YouTube at Sportsmaking. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. And if there is someone who works in the sports industry that you'd like to hear from, drop a comment on YouTube or on the Facebook page. Also, be sure to share, like, and review. Thank you for spending time with me on Sports in the Making. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Hey.